How should the church approach the difficult issue of homosexuality today? This week, Caleb Kaltenbach is our guest discussing how growing up with gay parents taught him to love even when grace is messy. It's all in episode 31 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 31 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Our guest this week is Caleb Kaltenbach. Caleb is the lead pastor of Discovery Church in Simi Valley, California. Raised in the LGBT community, he was exposed to how some Christians treated the LGBT community and grew up to hate Christians. In high school, he joined a Bible study to disprove the Bible, but ended up following Jesus instead. Later, his parents followed Jesus too. Here's our conversation with Caleb Kaltenbach. Caleb, it is so great to have you on the show today. I want to welcome you to the Church Leaders Podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a number of weeks, and uh, it's great to finally have you here. Man, it is so great to be here. Thanks for having me, and I love what you guys are doing at Church Leaders. It's awesome. Fantastic. Well, there's a lot of things we want to jump into today, um, specifically I mean, dealing with your story and what we can learn about grace and truth and uh, how leaders can kind of bridge that gap in, in the world and in the culture today. And you have a new book out, and it's called Messy Grace. And I just want to read the subtitle because it's really uh, fascinating to me. And I think your story, again, like there's a reason why it's connecting with so many of us because it's, it's very unique. You say, how a, it's Messy Grace, how a pastor with gay parents learned to love others without sacrificing conviction. And again, we'll, we'll link to the book in our show notes and uh, let people engage that as well too. But I'd love for you just to give a short overview of your story uh, before we jump in. Tell us what Messy Grace is about and a little bit about your life. Yeah, it's uh, about my life a little bit. It's about my parents' life a little bit, but really it's God's story. And that's why I wrote it. And hopefully it's helpful to uh, individuals and their personal relationships, but also to some degree churches. Uh, my story, when I was two years old, my parents got a divorce and both of them came out of the closet. Uh, my dad obviously is a gay man and my mom is a lesbian. My mother had a monogamous partner named Vera for about 22 years, and my dad, on the other hand, he had several different relationships, but he was never monogamous at all. He was uh, very much in the closet with me. I didn't find out about my dad until right around when I graduated college, maybe a little bit after. I mean, I always had my suspicions, but I just wasn't sure. My mom, on the other hand, had no qualms about letting people know what her sexual orientation was, and for her, it was almost like a religion. She was very much an activist. She took me with her to uh, gay parties and campouts and uh, clubs and parades. She joined the board of directors for GLAD, the Kansas City area uh, chapter of GLAD. She and her partner, Vera. Uh, I remember one time marching in a gay pride parade. And at the end of the parade, there were all these people holding up signs on the street corners and spraying water and urine on people who were in the parade with my mother. And I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, why are you? Why are they doing this? Why should we do something? Why are they doing this? She said, well, Caleb, they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. And I saw this over and over and over again from families that ignored uh, their kids who were dying from AIDS, and they didn't want to touch them or talk to them because uh, they felt like if they did that, they would, quote-unquote, be supporting uh, their, their choice to be in a same-sex relationship. And so I grew up in high school just really hating Christians. And by the time I got uh, to the age of 16, my life was a little bit out of control. But I was invited uh, by a high schooler who led a high school Bible study in his basement of his house. And so my plan was pretty simple. My, my hatred of Christians finally had a purpose. I was going to go, 
and I was going to uh, pretend like I was a Christian, be a ninja, learn about the Bible, but then I was going to dismantle their faith. And I remember I went to this Bible study, and everybody was in 1 Corinthians, and I was in 1 Chronicles, and uh, we were all reading verses, and then I read some weird verse and find out I'm in the Old Testament, and I guess that was news. I didn't even know there was a new one. And I kept on going back to learn more about Christianity, but I really ended up falling in love with Jesus and saying, this is a guy I can get on board with. And the more I studied Jesus, the more I realized that he was not like the people on the street corners, the more I realized that he was not like the people uh, who were angry or spraying urine or ignoring their kids, that, that Jesus had deep theology and one of the best as far as us for holy living. But on the other hand, he also had uh, very deep relationships and uh, never stayed away from people who are not like him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be around any of us. And he actually pursued people who are far away from God. And so the more I studied Jesus, the more that my opinion of him and the church and even sexuality changed. And my opinion of sexuality changed back then. I still have it today that I believe that God designed sexual intimacy for the context of marriage to be expressed between one man and one woman. And when I told my parents that I had uh, given my life to the ministry, they already knew that I was saved. Uh, this just completely ruined everything in their eyes. I mean, wow. in a sense, they disowned me. And I think that probably a good way for some people to understand it would be uh, the, the friction and the tension that a gay teenager has about coming out to his Christian parents. I was a teenager, 16 coming out as a Christian to my three gay parents. Wow. And that's the best way that I can explain it. So, uh, but at the same time, even though I was spending the night at a lot of friends' houses for a while in a season, and finally, you know, things worked out to where I was able to uh, go home and, and slowly rebuild my relationship with my dad and my mom and Vera, uh, I, I just really spent a lot of time studying the Bible. I felt like I had a lot of years to make up for and learn more and more about Jesus, learn more and more about grace and truth. And it's funny, the new love that I had for Christ actually gave me more love for my parents. And I leaned into that love uh, that I had for Christ. And that allowed me to love my parents more than what I ever thought I could. So I ended up going to Bible college in Southern Missouri and uh, went on staff for 11 years uh, at a, in a very large church in the Los Angeles area called Shepherd Church, also known as Shepherd of the Hills. And felt like I was called to preach, so I went to Dallas, Texas to preach at a church for three and a half years. And then uh, the summer of 2013, I came back to Southern California, to Simi Valley, uh, to pastor Discovery Church. So it has definitely been quite a journey. Wow, that is an amazing story, Caleb. And just to think about the emotion that's jam-packed into that as you came out to your parents um, as a believer and them having to wrestle with that with their worldview— uh, it was really unique and very interesting. And what I'd like to do now is basically talk about how the church um, can and should wrestle with these issues. Um, it's obviously a huge topic of discussion um, between tolerance and LGBT movements. Uh, but how would you say the church should approach that? What does the church get right right now? What does the church get wrong? And give us a little bit of a perspective on that to help us as we navigate this tough issue. Right. Well, first of all, I think that the word that we need to embrace and adopt right now. Uh, one word is tension, and we can, we'll definitely talk about that. But I think another word in terms of how we approach this is intentionality. I think that leaders and uh, pastors and missionaries, so on and so forth, I think you have to be intentional. As a matter of fact, 
what, what we know is missionaries who go overseas and they learn a different culture in a different context, they have to do contextualization, they have to learn about the culture, and they have to use the culture as a vessel to communicate uh, the message of Christ, uh, to communicate uh, salvation, to communicate the gospel. So I think, you know, it doesn't water it down, but I think that they learn culture in terms to communicate it. And we are great with missionaries doing that, but I think some of the times when it comes to being here in America, we still have this mindset of, well, you know, we don't need to change, and we just need to get culture back to where it was. And if there's one thing we know is that culture is never consistent. Culture is consistently shifting. I had a conversation with a college student not too long ago where uh, I was asking him where he based his moral and ethics on, and he said basically what I feel or, or what you know, I learn in society. And I said, if you base your ethics and morals on society and culture, you will always be changing your morals. But if you base your ethics and morals in the written Word of God, it's always going to be consistent, and it's always going to be the same. And so I think we need to be intentional, not only of studying culture, but of also how do we communicate uh, the gospel. And again, some people might say, well, we just need to be frank and firm and tell them the truth. Well, that's true. We do, but we don't have to be a jerk about it, and we don't have to be rude. And when you see the Apostle Paul and Jesus, both of them were so intentional with, with everything that they did. Like in Luke chapter 15, uh, when Jesus tells the three parables about uh, the lost coin and the lost son and the lost sheep, uh, at the very beginning of that chapter, he, uh, it says that he was aware of his audience, you know, people who were sure of themselves and their righteousness and sinners and so on and so forth. And so he was so intentional about how he crafted those stories. I think when you look at the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, and he's talking to the philosopher at Athens. He uses a secular song, and he uses their culture, even an altar to an unknown God, as an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. And then we see what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 9 and following, right? That there's intentionality. He says, to the weak, I become weak. I become all things to all people so that I might win some. And so I think even in the first century, there was intentionality. And I think to some degree, we've lost that intentionality because we're trying to preserve some kind of a culture when really what we're doing is we are promoting God's kingdom, which doesn't need to be preserved. God preserves it. And that's what we need to do. We need to be students of our culture at all times. So I think that's what we need to do. As far as what the churches and Christians in general are doing wrong, not to harp, but to be honest, I think that unfortunately, you know, we get too involved in a culture war. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand up for religious liberty. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand up to protect rights. I mean, I think that the gospel penetrates all areas of uh, life, including politics. But I think we have to be careful. And I think we have to learn not to rely on that so much. Uh, there's a big difference between somebody who's in another country and is a Christian and is persecuted and their humility compared to us some of the times when we feel like our rights are getting squeezed versus the other Christian who's compassionate and humble, and yet they could be killed for going to church. And so I think we need to rely less on culture. I think we need to rely less on our politics. I think that we need to be careful not to uh, paint the whole LGBT community with the same broad sweep of extremism. A lot of the people I know who are in same-sex relationships are not extremists. They actually love being in private, and they don't want to get involved in American politics, and they get annoyed at it as much as some of the rest of us do. I think that a big mistake we make is we don't realize how much we actually do have in common with the LGBT community. 
I mean, obviously we're promoting different things, but uh, we both have uh, kind of a subculture with books and movies and music. We attend seminars to understand why we believe what we believe. We have deep relationships in these communities. Uh, both communities are very creative. Uh, so there's a lot that we get wrong. We overreact when somebody comes out to us and we don't think deep about the individual. And so as far as what the church is doing wrong, not to harp on the church, I love the church. That's what I see. Yeah. And I think it's so fascinating to see the culture wars. And I think the the conversation easily gets hijacked by whether it's the media or anything, just to kind of pit Christians versus the LGBT community like that. Yeah, I mean, just slamming together when, like you said, there's so many people who are real. I mean, they're real people um, on both sides. And, and God's desire for us as the church is to love people deeply and to uh, to speak the truth. So it's not like we're saying, hey, it's okay. We're holding biblical convictions, which you just talked about, but then also loving people deeply like Jesus, like Paul, and trying to be intentional to communicate to them. I think that's a, it's a bold... It's a bold thought, but also a bold action to put that into play in our churches today. And, and I guess maybe a next step that I would ask you is like at Discovery Church, if, if a couple came in, let's say a lesbian couple walks in holding hands to Discovery Church on a Sunday that you don't know personally, what would you like them to experience or what would you like their experience to be like if they came to Discovery Church? Well, for lack of a better phrase, and maybe it's an appropriate phrase, uh, but we want to be a church where you can belong before you believe, that we want to be a church that anyone can come to, uh, whether somebody uh, believes in God or not, uh, whether they're in a same-sex relationship or not, whether a couple is living together or not, uh, somebody who has a drinking problem, they haven't owned it, uh, somebody who's in a gang, somebody who's using drugs, somebody who has addictions that they're not sharing, uh, somebody who uh, is, is struggling just in general. We want to be a church uh, that People love to attend, uh, no matter where they are in their spiritual journey. Now, at the same time, uh, we have very deep theological beliefs. We really, really do. And, and we never compromise on those. But yet, when we look at the first century church, it was still a place that people could go to, uh, even if they didn't believe. You know, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about tongues, he even makes a statement, hey, you know, if you're speaking in tongues and you don't have an interpreter and an unbeliever is with you, Will they not think that you're out of your mind? And so even right there, there's the assumption that even in the first century, there were people attending church that weren't even believing. And so we want to be a church that anyone can come to, a church uh, where you can belong before you believe. And, and here's the reason why. I believe that God is better at changing lives than I am. We don't shy away from talking about tough subjects. But at the same time, we don't expect people to get their act together in two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks, or whatever. When, when we look at an individual, when I look at an individual, no matter where they are, especially if they've come for the first time, and if they're unchurched, or they haven't been to church in a while, or maybe they don't even believe hardly anything at all, I believe that God is an expert at life change. And I believe that we need to give people margin. We need to give God margin to be able to break down prideful walls in people's hearts. And so if we put pressure on an individual, we could technically compromise what God is doing. And so there's a real tension there, right? There's a tension between grace and truth, and there's a tension of saying, hey, we have theological beliefs, but yet anybody can come, and we're going to give God margin to continue to work in your life, because honestly, none of us have it together. I'm a mess. I'm just a saved mess. 
Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense and definitely connects with the title of your book, Messy Grace, for sure. Hey, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and get your input on something really important. I think there's probably a number of our listeners um, who have been you have either had family members or you know distant relatives or friends that have struggled with uh, same-sex attraction. And would you just speak into like maybe even the pastor or the parent who uh, they find out their son or daughter has come out to them? What kind of instruction would you give them on things they should do, should not do, and just how to handle that initial situation? A uh, couple things. When somebody comes out to us, uh, there are some things, and I talk about this in the book, that we should do and we shouldn't do. First of all, don't look disappointed. I mean, I know that sometimes we can't control it, and it could be a surprise, but when somebody comes out to you, it is a very uh, personal thing that they're doing. They're trusting you with a very intimate part of their life. And so in a sense, I know this sounds weird, uh, but you should feel honored that somebody has said, hey, I want to let you in on this part of my life. And so when we look disappointed without even meaning to, we can really hurt that other person and we can wound them. So I would say don't look disappointed. I would also say don't, don't get mad. I mean, in that moment, we need to do more listening than talking. What is getting mad going to do? How is that going to help anything whatsoever, right? Another thing I would say is in that moment, in that moment, do not throw out Bible verses. Because I'm pretty sure even if the other person coming out to you is not a Christian, they probably know that the Bible is interpreted by many people not to be uh, approving of same-sex relationships or pursuing one. You know, I would also say don't compare sins. Don't say something like, you know, well, I believe that what you're doing is no different than murder or adultery, so I understand. Well, okay, you know, you need to be careful with that because, I mean, even though that might be theologically true, you just compared them to Hannibal Lecter. So, I mean, that that's not too cool. I wouldn't try to get them counseling at all. Everybody needs counseling. But I would say reaffirm your relationship. Say, hey, my love for you is not based on sexual orientation. Say, God loves you and so do I. Say, thank you for letting me in on this part of your life. And I'm in your corner and I'm going to be praying for you. And uh, we are always good. Because here's, Brian, the bottom line. You know, I think we have to learn that there's a difference between acceptance and approval. That anybody, as I said, we want to be a church where you can belong before you believe, for lack of a better phrase. And I understand we belong to the body of Christ when we actually believe in Jesus, but I mean in attendance on Sundays and attending within the church community. We have to understand that anybody should be able to walk through our doors on Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever we meet. But that doesn't mean that we approve of every life choice. You're shaking, pastors are shaking hands with people every weekend that have done things that they would not approve of. And so we need to understand that we can't accept people, but that doesn't mean that we have to approve of their life choice. And we have to learn to think about this from a deeper issue. Because a lot of us think that if somebody identifies as gay or lesbian, that means that the biggest issue is they want to have sex with somebody the same gender. But I learned from my mom and from other people since that same-sex intimacy is not the biggest way that somebody identifies. One time my mom told me this, and I don't remember why or how. It's awkward, so let's just you know not ask why. But okay. <laughs> she told me the last several years of her relationship with Vera, they weren't intimate at all. But I said, how can you call yourself a lesbian? And she said, well, that's my community. Those are my people. Those are the people that I uh, relate with. I have acceptance there. I'm part of a cause and a movement. And I said, well, Mom, you just described the church. And she said, no, I didn't. Why would I go somewhere that would make me feel less about myself? And it really dawned on me, we're dealing with an identity issue. 
I mean, here's the deal. It's all about identity. It's, it's like why we, we're dealing with Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn Jenner with the lady who was leading the NAACP up in the Northwest, who turns out she's Caucasian, but she still says, I identify as an African-American. And when we don't learn to step outside of our own skin and contextualize like missionaries and think about what the other person might be thinking or experiencing, we end up hurting other people. I mean, so many Christians I know will say, well, I have somebody who's uh, gay in my workplace, and I, and I told him what Leviticus said, and I told him what Corinthians and Romans said and Genesis 19, and I say things like, have you built a relationship with them? Do you know them? No. Here's what they're thinking. When we don't have a relationship, when we don't know a person, when we treat them like pet evangelistic projects, hmm. and we just share what the Bible says about same-sex intimacy, we are reducing them to their sexual orientation. We're doing to them what we tell them not to do. And not only that, they're thinking, one of the smaller ways I identify as gay or lesbian is who I like to have sex with. It's so much more. But yet you haven't taken time to get to know me or my experiences or my hurts and my pains and my joy. And they walk away hurt. And the, you know, I just think to myself, how much more of an impact would it be if we actually treated people like people, built a relationship with them, didn't try out our new evangelistic ninja moves on them, but yet helped them to learn that they were designed by God to identify with God primarily. And as they begin to fall in love with Jesus and identify with Jesus, and he begins to impact all the domains of their life, like family, vocation, relationships, then God gives margin for us to have a conversation within the midst of trust about holy living. To me, that's a much better way to think about this issue rather than to deal with behavior modification, which is not the gospel. Well, and I think this leads us into the story of your parents as well. As you worked at having a relationship with them, um, having very different worldviews, but still loving them deeply, uh, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about like uh, the end of that story, where they're at today and kind of what's happened um, recently. Yeah, my mother's partner died of uh, cancer back in 2005, and I tried to share the gospel with her one last time, and she didn't want to have anything to do with it. She told me, as a matter of fact, she said, Caleb, I think you're weak, and I think you use Jesus as a crutch. And I said, well, you're halfway to salvation because I am weak, and he's not my crutch. He's my wheelbarrow. Wow. And I mean, I'm, in the, I'm not even in the backseat of Jesus's car. He's driving. I'm in the trunk. I, I am weak. I can't live life without Christ. That's part of what repentance is. It's reliance on Him. It's a 180-degree turn in your worldview and your mindset. And unless something happens, she went to a Christless eternity. My, my mom went through a deep depression. And in 2010, as I said in the beginning, uh, we left Shepherd Church after 11 years to, uh, as an associate pastor to go uh, preach at a church in Dallas. Both of my parents, separate of one another, moved to Dallas to be closer to our family. That was incredible. And, and yet they started attending my church. And I'm like, you know what I believe, you know? All right, come on over. The water's nice and warm. And dude, people were nicer to my parents than I was. <laughs> I don't even know how that happened. But yet, it, two weeks before we left to move back to Simi Valley to Southern California to lead Discovery Church, both my mom and dad gave their lives to the Lord, both wow. of them. And they're not in same-sex relationships. And I, and I look at them and they believe in Jesus. And they still struggle with what they've struggled with before. Uh, they're still same-sex attracted. 
Uh, they're trying to live for Jesus. They have different theological perspectives than I do. And how does all that go together? I have no clue. Hmm. I just know that if they were changed, first and foremost, not by apologetics. Apologetics was part of it. But the first entry point was people loving them yeah. and treating them like individuals and people living in the tension of grace and truth. Because everybody who's listening to this, we either side more on the side of grace or more on the side of truth. And what's really weak is you can find churches that are either just all about the grace or all about the truth. And yet when we say, I'm going to live in the uncomfortable tension of grace and truth, you know, if we're on the grace side, it brings us to the true side. If we're on the true side, it brings us closer to the grace side. And we're actually imitating Jesus. John 1, 14 and 17 say that he came full of both grace and truth. And in the book, one of my biggest arguments is that uh, there is a name for the tension between grace and truth, and it's love. I believe that love is the tension of grace and truth. And I believe that it's that love for God and people, both love God, love others. I think it's that love of tension between grace and truth that actually helped my mom and dad find the Lord. Thanks again to Caleb Kaltenbach for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, or review us in iTunes and consider sending this episode to someone you know who might be blessed by its message. Make sure to download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. The show notes always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guests' top content on churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.